Welcome to the Yale Law Journal podcast. My name is Rachel Summers, the Editor-in-Chief of Volume 131. And this is Bapu Kodapati, Executive Editor for Features and Book Reviews. We're joined here by Pavanda Dute, an Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, as well as other YLJ editors and members of the YLS community. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Today, we hope to discuss and celebrate the contributions of Professor Adut, the journal's inaugural Emerging Scholar of the Year. The Emerging Scholar of the Year Award celebrates the achievements of early career academics who have made significant contributions to legal thought and scholarship. It seeks to promote scholarship that has the potential to drive improvements in the law and to spotlight the exceptional work of its honorees. The Emerging Scholar of the Year is selected by the journal's editors after an intensive semester-long review process a committee of editors, including the executive editor for features and book reviews and the editor-in-chief, prepared a slate of candidates based on a variety of factors, which included scholarly impact and contribution. Then the entire mast had voted on that slate to select the Emerging Scholar of the Year. The journal's inaugural Emerging Scholar of the Year is an associate professor of law at the University of Virginia School of Law, where she teaches federal courts and a seminar on the separation of powers. Professor Dutz's insights about federal courts are grounded in years of practical experience. She served as a law clerk to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court and to Deborah Ann Livingston on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. She's also served as a Bristow Fellow in the Office of the Solicitor General of the United States. Professor Dutz, congratulations. We are so excited to have you with us today. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so I think we'll have Bapu ask uh, the first question. Thank you. So Professor Adut, we at YLJ have now had the pleasure of reading your scholarship over the course of selecting the Emerging Scholar of the Year. For our listeners who might be less familiar with your work, could you describe your scholarship and its substantive focus? So um, my focus is basically on modern judicial power and exercises of it through the lens of federal courts. And in particular, one of the main questions I'm focusing on now is how litigating separation of powers through the federal court system affects the content of separation of powers. And so one of my earlier works, Enforcement Lawmaking and Judicial Review, talks about the district courts and the impact that district courts have on separation of powers through litigation. And now I'm working on a piece, Separation of Powers Avoidance, that basically interrogates the different tactics and doctrines that courts use uh, to avoid having Congress and the executive as parties before them that they have to force to do things. So I think it'd be really interesting for, for us all here and listening at home to have a clear understanding of why you're writing about these issues. Like to what extent did your experiences in the federal courts as a Bristow fellow help define the issues that you're now studying? How did that come about? We'd be really interested to hear. So when I left law school, I knew that I loved federal courts and I love thinking about it and studying it. But when I went to the Solicitor General's office as a Bristow fellow, it was a formative year for me to see what a monolith the federal government is and the fictions that we talk about when the federal government is the one litigating the case or charged with focusing the issues that get before not only the Supreme Court, but also all of the courts of appeal and sometimes the district courts. So when I was there, there was this case uh, that was being argued before the Supreme Court called Toka versus Louisiana, which is a precursor to Montgomery versus Louisiana, which... Um, we sat around and puzzled about for a while, thinking about whether the Supreme Court had jurisdiction to hear this case. And we all sat down and I was thinking, why would the Supreme Court possibly take this case, this challenging case that made such an unclear uh, assertion of jurisdiction? And 
I realized that it was the only channel available to the Supreme Court because the federal government had taken a position of holding Miller retroactive in the federal prison system. In uh, Miller versus Alabama, the Supreme Court held that the sentence of mandatory life without parole is unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment for juvenile offenders. So in a later case called Montgomery, uh, the court says this Miller case is retroactive to cases on collateral review. So that means to individuals who were imprisoned under a regime of mandatory life without parole before Miller was decided. And so through this, what some might call a benevolent act of permitting individuals who were sentenced under uh, to life without parole in a pre-Miller world to be released from prison, what the federal government actively did was preclude a federal dispute from getting to the federal courts. And so we needed a state dispute, or we, I don't know who the we is in this, but the Supreme Court needed a state dispute to finally reach out and answer the question of why is or is Miller retroactive to cases on collateral review. And so I started looking at these very discrete sorts of questions in this systemic way of how is who I'm working for affecting the cases that are getting before this court? And that's something I've taken with me as I analyze other sorts of problems that I see in uh, litigation in the court system. And then we would love to talk a bit about your intended audience. Who do you see yourself as speaking to when you're writing about federal courts issues? So it depends on the piece and Rachel actually helped me understand who it is that I'm trying to reach. I think all of my pieces have a hope at least that judges are reading it or thinking about it maybe eventually, if not as soon as they're published or as they're circulated. Um, but I think one of my audiences is definitely judges, sometimes at the Supreme Court and sometimes in the district courts to hear what I have to say. With direct collateral review, I also had in mind lawyers basically who are defending individuals who are currently in prison. Uh, and I wanted to reveal to them, hey, the Supreme Court tells you don't petition for review from collateral review in state cases, but they're behaving in the opposite way. So my hope was that lawyers would read the piece or hear about the piece and then bring those kinds of cases so that we could see an actual impact. And by what yardstick are you measuring that impact? So one thing that I'll say is it's different for a case like direct collateral review than it is for enforcement lawmaking and judicial review. So in direct collateral review, I saw, um, I was basically forwarded from habeas listservs, this piece going around. And for me, it's not so much the content of the paper in every single page that matters that the lawyers are receiving this information. It's that they see I'm looking and I'm telling you a message and it's important and you should respond to this. And I think knowing that uh, habeas attorneys are looking about and considering that piece is to me something that means this is successful. Um, for enforcement lawmaking and judicial review, I think the, the question that I have, which is how is the distribution of governing authority impacted by the fact that we litigate separation of powers, as long as people are starting to think that's a worthwhile question to ask, then I think the paper is a success. I know a lot of people disagree with maybe prescriptions that I make in the paper or maybe individual, uh, individual pieces of evidence that I collect together. But if they see that there's a systemic impact to litigating separation of powers disputes and they're willing to talk on that sort of plane, then I think 
that's a success in my book. Shifting gears a little, in your piece, Enforcement Lawmaking and Judicial Review, you surface a really interesting phenomenon. You argue that in response to expansions in the executive's power, the judiciary has devised a variety of checks on the executive's exercise of enforcement discretion. What are some avenues to which courts have gone about doing this? And what are the implications of this shift for separation of powers principles? So I think we're seeing a lot of enterprising attorneys bring cases to district court to prevent the president basically from issuing uh, issuing proclamations, whether it's an executive order or having the administrative agency sort of issue a rule or something rule-like, um, amending a rule without going through the formal rulemaking process. So even last week, this is definitely an implication of my work, a case pertaining to whether mask mandates are permissible if they're validly promulgated under the APA or not. That's the kind of checking that we're talking about here. Can those cases go before courts and have the courts basically interrogate, did you follow the prescribed process? And then sort of check the executive when they don't. Some may disagree with the legal holdings in the case, but it's definitely a phenomenon that fit, feeds into what it is that I'm describing. What, if any, implications do you think SB8 and private enforcement schemes like it might have for ex parte young claims seeking pre-enforcement review? So I have thought from the early days of seeing SB8 that there was someone who really paid attention in federal courts class and started dis you know, using those powers. I'm not going to pass on whether it's for good or evil, but they were using the powers of learning federal courts in passing that legislation or advising on passing that legislation. And for me, something that's really interesting is um, what the Supreme Court had to say about whether a pre-enforcement challenge on an ex parte young claim is available here. And the court basically ossified ex parte young and said, we're not going any further from this traditional understanding of what ex parte young is and does. But when we think about courts sitting in equity, we're thinking about, I think, courts filling in the gaps and trying to basically prevent parties with unclean hands from going around what the law requires them to do. And so it's weird to limit equity power in this particular way. So in a very practical way, when I, when I taught uh, Jackson to my students, I said, how does this change our understanding of ex parte young? And the answer is sort of not at all with respect to what you might have understood ex parte young to do in the past. But also dramatically, when you think about what ex parte young could do in the future. And the answer from the court is sort of, we're going to look back and only go with what we've done in the past, and we're not going to respond. And in general, I think it's probably dangerous for courts to tie their hands in this way, to not be able to respond to new, new and creative lawyering on another side, especially when you think about why these remedies came to existence in the first place. Um, so my answer is sort of SBA does nothing at all, but it also does everything. It's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> Many of our listeners in, and certainly many in this room are interested in becoming legal academics and p placing their own scholarship in the world. 
What advice do you have for them about developing an ambitious scholarly agenda and pursuing it as you have done? So while you're in law school, I think the most important thing, um, contrary to what some say, it's not to write. It's to figure out why it is you want to be a legal academic. What's the thing that gets you excited that you want to think about nonstop? Because you will be thinking about this nonstop. You'll be going around issue spotting for the rest of your life if you decide to be a legal academic. And I think finding that passion is far and away number one. And then after that, I don't know. I think in some ways, if you can practice in a field that informs what it is that you're interested in, there are tons of interesting problems that are out there. And then I would pause and think big. So I saw this one little weird case that was granted by the Supreme Court while I was a Bristow fellow. And it was basically a dog with a bone and I wouldn't let it go. Why did you possibly grant this case instead of something else? And it took three years of slogging and learning about habeas to understand what it was that the court was doing and why, and then writing up and sharing my discovery. And along the way, as I raised this problem with other people, in practice, they didn't really care, right? They just want to know, does the court have jurisdiction in this case? Not, why are we here? What is this channel that's going on? And in the academy, I think there's sometimes some resistance to having a real case being what informs the agenda. Um, but I am unapologetically a lawyer first, and I think of things in a lawyerly way. And then I dive deep as a scholar to understand why it is that the law is this way and why it is that our world looks this way. And I think that that can be a really important skill uh, as you're developing an agenda is what's really interesting to me and am I willing to power through and excavate and learn and maybe convince myself, hey, this isn't worth writing, but probably convincing myself there is something here that's worth writing and I have to figure out how do I do that. I know earlier today we had talked about your experience taking federal courts or sitting in a federal courts classroom more than once. And I'm interested in hearing more about that experience, what you got out of it the first and second time, how, if at all, that sort of informed the, the Bristow experience and the trajectory from there, um, or how that might have informed your teaching. So I took federal courts as a 3L um, and I loved it. And then I came in and audited a different federal courts class when I was a fellow. So this is after I was a Bristow fellow, after I spent time at a firm, I came back to law school and I wanted to see what's another way to teach this class with another professor who people love. Um, and sitting in that class, I saw that there are so many different ways to convey particular information and it made me less afraid to bring my own voice into teaching a Fed courts class. And so I think that for the pedagogical, like it was more a pedagogical experience for me than it was an academic experience, if that makes sense, uh, to bring my unique perspective, my unique experiences into the classroom and teach things in a different way. Because people always tell you when you're starting out, you have to teach the class according to your personality. Don't try to be someone you're not. Like, don't try to be this, you know, horrible cold caller if you're really a nice person. 
And for me, I realized I am a horrible cold caller. <laughs> I found through different methods of teaching, I could be the demanding professor who wants to get a lot out of my students and also give them a lot. Um, and the confidence to sort of be that professor who sounds worse on a podcast than in her teaching evaluations, I'm sure, or I hope, um, <laughs> came from seeing multiple people teach the same material and get sort of glowing reviews from students who were learning so, so much. And when you said just a few minutes ago that you want to bring your you know, different or unique perspective or experience. By that, are you referring to your experience as a lawyer, as a practitioner or something else or more than that? I'm mostly referring to my experience as a lawyer and a practitioner. I know that something like 75% of my students are going on to clerk. Most of them are going on to be litigators, or at least that's what they tell me in their initial survey that I send them out before we start class. And there are things that I just did not learn when I was in law school and I was expected to know day one of my clerkship. And so these things come into my class, I teach them about it. Um, and I ask lots of questions about practically, like how would this go? How would you write this memo to your judge? What are they looking for? Um, and I also, I also teach them the things that I didn't know that led to embarrassing moments in my practice career, because I feel like if I can do anything, I can prevent them from being embarrassed in front of their judge or in front of a law firm partner on exactly the kinds of questions that I was embarrassed about. We just had the experience together of sitting in Judith Resnick's Fed Courts class, and this was the penultimate class. Um, and I'm wondering how, if at all, you know, any of the themes that, that we were talking about or the experience of now being in a third classroom might be something that, that you take back with you. Yeah, so Judith Resnick's class is completely different from both of the Fed Courts classes I've sat in and the one that I teach. And she starts from a premise that, and I talked to her about this after class, that you don't need her to explain to you or help you understand what happened in the case. She's there to help you understand why you should care and how you should think about the system as a whole. And I definitely took lessons just from that two hours about how to level up some of the discussions in my class and draw the kinds of connections throughout the course that I think can counter sort of apathy of why am I learning about this doctrine? You all, you all who take that class with her, you know why you're learning about that doctrine and why you should care about it. And I think I sometimes get questions in my class from the legal realists in the room who are wondering if all we're doing is rearranging deck chairs. Um, and her approach, I think, would preemptively dismiss that question because they already know why we're learning. And, and once you zero in on an issue and determine you know, what perspective you'd like to bring to bear on that issue, what does your writing process look like? So my writing process is to begin with like a very bad draft. And setting in motion the idea that I can write something that's really bad gets me over the hurdle of having writer's block and just getting things out on the page. And I put everything out there. This is all, of course, after I've spent like months collecting evidence for my claims. But after that, when I write, I start off with a really bad draft and I refine over just three or four months 
and every word of it basically changes to the final moment. Um, but getting over writer's block is something that has been challenging. Um, and the way for me to do that is to commit to writing, not to committing to writing something good. How has your experience teaching, maybe more specifically your separation of power seminar, informed your latest project and your work? So as part of my separation of power seminar, I assign OLC opinions. And this is something I didn't read many of in my practice life. And I assigned this OLC opinion that I was talking to my students about, which then cited this case that we were also talking about. And we were talking about the interaction between the case and the OLC opinion and whether it belonged in the OLC opinion, which is ultimately the seed that sparked this paper that I'm currently writing, Separation of Powers Avoidance. So it's that moment that academics talk about where your teaching agenda perfectly lines up with your research agenda. And I didn't know it before I walked into the classroom, but by bringing those materials to my students who were asking for non-judicial materials in class, I was able to see what non-judicial materials on separation of powers kind of look like through this completely different lens. So it was like a perfect marriage in that class, which led to this paper. What will you be teaching next year? The same seminar or something different? I'm going to teach the same seminar a little bit different because I always ask my students, what are the kinds of things you want to learn? So the syllabus changes, or I imagine that the syllabus will change, and I'll also be teaching constitutional law. No doubt our, our listeners are excited about your paper, but could, would you mind giving them a preview of what separation of powers avoidance is about? Yeah, so separation of powers avoidance is about the doctrines and tools that courts use to avoid having the executive branch or Congress before them in a dispute that would require the court to tell Congress or the executive branch what to do. So we're talking about separation of powers litigation, maybe when Congress is trying to enforce a subpoena against the president, or maybe um, when someone is trying to get discovery on the president who's a private individual. So in these sorts of cases, I argue that the court is also worried in a separation of powers sense, as a participant in the separation of powers, about telling the president what to do or telling Congress what to do. And so they employ this familiar tool of avoidance that you may have heard about in your legislation class, the statutory canon of constitutional avoidance. It's a similar move where courts say, hey, we're not gonna get there. We're gonna resolve things before we have to tell the president what to do by interpreting what's going on differently. So if we're talking about stakes, particularly as they are intersecting or sort of flowing through your particular subfield, I'm interested in how, if at all, you think the political moment that we're in now, and I'm thinking about that sort of in reference to some examples that you gave earlier, however, you know, you might even more broadly understand that, um, would have informed your desire to go into and be writing in this field, if this is sort of a more interesting time to be in that subfield, or if this, you know, the particular moment that we're in feels very uh, weighty or different to us because we're in it when actually sort of the same sorts of questions or stakes have been there all along. I do think that something over the last five years feels aberrational and not like the norm just sort of 
moving and shifting in a particular direction. And so I clerked for Justice Ginsburg in 2015 um, at the at a time when one of the first things that we now call a nationwide injunction was issued in Texas. And I think that if that hadn't happened during that time, I wouldn't have seen sort of this idea that something weird was going on in the district courts. It wasn't just one judge issuing this nationwide injunction. It was lots of judges across the country issuing these nationwide injunctions. And I'm thinking to myself like, huh, that seems like an alarm bell. What's going on there? And then I start seeing states suing the president constantly. President sort of broadly construed, maybe the president, maybe an agency. And I'm thinking, huh, that, that seems like another alarm bell. What's going on here? And so the connections that form the paper, enforcement lawmaking and judicial review, really are from the moment and seeing all of these alarm bells going off at the same time through Fed courts doctrines. But one thing that I'll say, I always feel like I have to defend my work as what if President Trump weren't president during this time? Would we have seen this? Does it matter if he's no longer president? And I think that, um, I think one response to that is the idea of executive privilege really comes from a set of cases decided during the Nixon administration. And at the time, I'm sure everybody was thinking, hey, this seems really weird and strange, and this is aberrational. What's worth studying executive privilege now? So in separation of powers, we're often in the land of theory. And we're in the land of theory because thankfully we live in a country where we don't have to ask the question, like, what if Congress stripped all jurisdiction of the federal courts to hear any constitutional claim? Like, we don't live there yet. So when you have sort of an aberrational time, when you're rubbing up against the limits that you thought were there and the norms that were there, you're going to get a lot of information that's worth studying. And that's why I think the moment as a scholar is so interesting because there isn't a lot written. There's not a lot that's understood because a lot of the things haven't happened yet. And once they happen, I think that they carry import in the future because that executive privilege that President Biden claims now is the same executive privilege that President Nixon was claiming in his time that everybody thought was aberrational. So I don't think that the moment is aberrational. And I do think that parts of the ideas and doctrines that come out of this moment are going to endure, even if the people in power abide by a set of norms that are similar to what we might have expected 10 years ago. On that, we have a question from the audience. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Professor. My name is Max. Now that we're on this aberrational topic, I was really interested by your characterization of it as an aberrational moment. Uh, I at least have tended to think about aberrational cases or controversies. And in that, through that lens, I think a lot about how, you know, there are different degrees, I guess, of aberration and especially nationwide injunctions provides a really interesting concrete example, because in some cases there's, to my mind, a greater case for legitimacy for an injunction, say, that's brought under the APA, where the APA itself provides for one of the remedies being to set aside agency action, which legitimates something that an injunction in another context might really, you know, 
militate against, you know, the tr our traditional conceptions of when that kind of remedy is appropriate. So I'm wondering if you can just say a little more about what you mean by an aberrational moment as opposed to aberration individual cases and sort of how you, I guess, classify or create a hierarchy of different kinds of aberration in the law. I think that's a really interesting question. I should probably start with something that's a little bit aberrational about my perspective. And that's that I often don't see the administrative state as something wholly distinct in all cases from the president. That doesn't mean that I, it's not the unitary executive theory that I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this process of enforcement lawmaking that's in the paper, which is where the president or those close to the president are directing what happens in an administrative agency in a way that might be putting bureaucrats in place who agree, but in the more extreme, putting, basically sending a directive out. And so I understand your perspective to say that in the APA, we give judges power to set aside something that doesn't comply with procedural rulemaking. But how different is it really when the president directs the head of an agency to do something versus the president directing the head of the Department of Homeland Security to do something that doesn't even purport to be rulemaking? And I think that both of those things, there, there are things to be gained by viewing administrative law as separate and then there's something to be gained by viewing administrative law as a piece of what's going on in the executive branch, but not in the terms of a unitary executive theory to understand how governance is actually done. So when I talk about aberrational moment, I'm really talking about this crossover and this power grab of administrative power within the executive branch more than I'm talking about like an individual sort of claim of executive power that we want to be able to challenge or press back on. I see we're coming kind of close up on the time. We're so grateful to have you here and to have had the opportunity to read your scholarship on the page and then talk to you about it off the page. Can I say, I'm really glad to be here. Sometimes when I'm writing, I think to myself, is anyone ever going to read this? And the idea that you have all, or at least some of you, sat and read my work is something incredibly gratifying. And I'm so grateful that you spent the time to engage with it and to bring me here and talk to me. This is such a pleasure and honor, Professor Adir. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thank you to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful people at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.